Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush. I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate and vineyard worker. And I'm Gabe. I'm WSCT Level 3 certified in wine, and I'm an administrator for a wine spirits educating body. And we are a podcast that talks about huh? wine. <sighs> Not again. <laughs> Letterkenny and Shorzy. Yeah! references if you haven't seen it watch it we're not sponsored by them but we would love to be thank you bye bye uh but we are uh, a wine beer and spirits podcast not a hulu and crave original series review podcast so that would be a fun podcast oh no i'd totally be down just to like have a youtube channel where we just like oh no that would be like reaction We'd have to actually review it, like actually discuss the things, not just sit there and make big eyes every time that a joke is made. <laughs> what? what? He scored a goal? What? what? My eyes and eyebrows are trying to recede to the back of my skull. Oh no, it's working. <laughs> it's a, wait, I, wait, I become wait, a wait, Cenobite wait, just wait. because I react so Body hard. Body horror movie of react content that's gone too far oh no i love it that's exactly i was saying like i want to go full cenobite yes all right so we have a new podcast coming out (laughs) yeah follow us at laidback lunch in order to have updates of the new podcast that we're coming out with (laughs) and that's going to be on instagram and twitter Please also do share this with your family, your friends, with your neighbors, with the uh, people that ask you for money on the street. All of them. Just, you know, (laughs) share this podcast, please. Gabe does not necessarily (laughs) uh, sign off on that message for the record. Uh, Yeah, that's all on Michael. I'll I'll let you deal with the authorities on that one. Yeah, but do please share this podcast with anybody who you think might be interested or, you know, is into wine, beer or spirits. That really is the best way to see this little podcast grow. We just love to shill. We love self-promotion. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the only way we're going to ever be able to do this sustainably. Next best thing that you can do when you like and subscribe to our channels is also to DM us with your questions. Let us know what you guys want us to cover. Uh, You're our audience. We appreciate you so much. And we would love to know what sort of things that you're curious about. Yes. Today, we are doing the second part in a two-part little tiny series on Chile. Uh, now, a mini-series, a mini if you series. will. Uh, in our last episode, we talked about Chile, which, if you are not familiar, is a long country on the western edge of South America, bordering Argentina, Bolivia, and Peru. And it is about 6,000 miles of coastland, with only a 100 miles at its widest point. What would you say is your favorite part of the topography of Chile, Michael? Um, huh? D- God. <laughs> <Damn it>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Enough is with the Shorzy. Is that a legit question? Enough huh? with, no, it was literally just me trying to shoehorn another Shorzy, huh? Because it's the coastal vineyards. Thank you. <laughs> I knew. I knew you were going to say that because that's where the Pinot comes from. Well, duh. (laughs) So we are talking today, though, in more specifics, since in the last one we talked about the history and a bit of an overview of the area, as well as which grapes that they're going to be growing. A little bit of climate. A little bit of climate. Today, we wanted to go into a couple of the more specific places. This Mm -hmm. is such a long, narrow country stretching down the latitude of its 6,000 miles, about 20, what was it, 2,100 
of which is used for grape growing. There are so many microclimates, Mm -hmm. so many different places that have such a different expression and a different use for these different grapes. We really wanted to be able to go in and just tell you about those as well as some wine labeling laws so that you're able to, again, walk confidently into the store and ask for something specifically or, you know, read it on the label, whichever one ends up piquing your curiosity. Yes. Now, before we really delve into the regions, there were two particular climate factors that I really wanted to hammer in real quick because they are very key to understanding how these regions are so different from one another. And we kind of touched on this last episode, but I really wanted to make sure that, you know, if you only listen to this episode, you really know. Uh, So the first is going to be coastal influence. So as we mentioned last episode, we have this cold Humboldt current coming from the Antarctic that blows along the coast. Now, if Chile did not have this current, it would be very, very hot, particularly in the more northern regions of Chile. What that means for grape growing is that this cooling influence allows for more cooling effect to happen, which allows for particularly grapes that can handle these cooler climates to be able to grow and fully uh, flourish, I guess, as wine grapes. Yeah. Otherwise, it would simply be too hot. Now... Especially for Pinot. I mean, Pinot is a super delicate grape. It has super thin skins. It actually bursts if it gets too much, Mm -hmm. uh, too ripe, or just has too much water. It's a very hard grape to grow, even in ideal climate conditions. So having that moderating uh, factor in the form of the Humboldt current is Mm -hmm. essential. Another thing with coastal influence is, aside from moderating just the coast because we have this coastal mountain range that extends down chile again we have the coastal mountain range and then further inland we have the andes mountains and there's a valley in between them the coastal mountain range where you have breaks in the mountain can uh, act as a funnel for these cold currents to come through and typically there will be rivers in these valleys that will also act as a cooling influence for grapes further inland as well Now, depending on where you're at in the coastal mountain range, that can block it or allow access. That depends on the region. But that kind of wraps up my coastal influence. And then I wanted to talk about altitude just very quickly. Altitude is very important for a lot of high-quality wines in Chile in particular. And in general, uh, altitude tends to be good for hotter countries or regions. That's because as you go up in altitude on a mountain... If you live around or near mountains, you probably have experienced this firsthand. It gets cooler the farther you go up. That also gives you access. These altitudes give you access to a higher diurnal range, Mm -hmm. which means, again, it's getting cooler at night, hotter during the day, slows down ripening to a sweet spot where things are still getting fully ripe, but they're not getting fully ripe too quick. So they end up jammy and kind of overripe when they're picked. They kind of hit just like the perfect spot when they're able to have that diurnal range. That comes again from altitude. You can get altitude on the Andes side or some of the coastal mountain ranges also have some altitude plantings that are beginning to pop up. You also have really good sunlight when you plant higher up on mountains and plants photosynthesize right sunlight is good for plants and they are very good for grapes as well grapes need a lot of sun to fully develop so 
that being out of the way, let's get into some regions. Absolutely. So, and uh, oh, sorry, not to cut you off, but we did organize these from north to south. It's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, perfect. Just, just, just for uh, your edification and enrichment, we have decided to organize these in such a way as to be easily reviewable on a map. Yes. So starting off, we have the Atacama region. This is not really known as a very prestigious wine region or even a very popular one, but it is a wine growing region. It's going to have the Copaipo. I hope I am pronouncing that correctly. I am so sorry if I am not. And the Huasco Valleys. This is going to be an area that primarily grows pice, pajarete, which is a grape I don't really know anything about, never Neither heard of it before. I. But they also produce some uh, table wines and even some table grapes actually here in this region. That's all we really have for Atacama. When we get into the more recognized regions, we then go to Coquimbo. And this is going to border the Atacama Desert. So there's a very interesting climate here because it's near a desert, very little available water. Mm -hmm. So irrigation is essential for this region. It is cooled by sea breezes and it's also cooled by mountain air. Something I forgot to mention about mountains is uh, cool air tends to descend from mountain tops, which helps keep a nice cool breeze going in vineyards that are planted along mountains. High altitude plantings are increasing in this region as, you know, producers are looking for more refined styles of wine and whatnot. The two main valleys here that are wine growing valleys are going to be the Elki Valley and the Limari Valley. Elki has Sauvignon Blanc and Syrah as kind of their primary grapes that they're growing. These are going to be, you know, your cooler, um, if they're plenty of altitude in particular, kind of your cooler climate styles. You have Pisco being produced here as well, which uh, if you didn't listen to our last episode, Pisco is a form of grape brandy that is very popular in the country. Now, both of these little sub-regions are actually further defined by the fact that they have these very large rivers that go through them. It's yes. the Rio Elqui and the Rio Limari. And that's the only reason why these things can exist. Yeah. These, they would not exist without these two rivers. Yeah, and that's what allows this cool ocean breeze to come in in the first place. Because again, the mountains can kind of act as a funnel to get it in there. Exactly. Another point on Elki is that it is also a large source for commercial wines. Mm -hmm. The Lamari Valley is primarily going to be known for its Chardonnay. Then we're moving out of Coquimbo into Aconcagua. This lies between the coastal mountains and the Pacific. So a lot of coastal influence here. One of the big defining um, consequences of that in terms of the climate of this region is the fogs that tend to come in in the morning time from the humidity and the coolness of the coast. This allows for viticulture to happen in an otherwise very hot region. Again, when we're this far north on the southern hemisphere, it's still very hot without these mitigating factors and wine production just wouldn't really be feasible. Now, we do have some sub-valleys here as well. We have the Aconcagua Valley. This is going to be known primarily for its reds. This is going to have a warm climate from mountain protection on both sides of the valley floor. So it's going to have the Andes and the coastal mountains kind of 
guardian on both sides. So it's going to be warmer. It's going to be blocking some of that cool air from coming in. But it does have some cooling from the coastal air and from that cool air again that will come down from the Andes Mountains. Plantings are increasing on the slopes of the mountains just for, again, a more refined style of wine, for more high-quality production. Then we go into one of my personal favorite regions of Chile, which is the Casablanca Valley. This is gaining a very big reputation for its cooler climate Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and Pinot Noir. Casablanca is very affected by the coastal influence here, so it's much cooler than a lot of other regions in Chile are, which is what allows for this cooler climate style of these wines to come forth. The Sauvignon Blanc in particular, I have really enjoyed. I haven't really tried much of the Pinot Noir, but um, the one that I have tried, it was very good. Yeah, it, um, it's a fantastic <clears throat> little place. It's actually, it's just north of San Antonio and directly just laterally west of Santiago, their their capital. Mm-hmm. Beautiful wines coming out of here. Very sophisticated. Yeah. Uh, especially their Pinot Noir. This is actually the reason why I love the more coastally influenced Pinot Noirs that come from this area. Yeah. So if you like more of that acidic, particularly for whites, uh, citrus forward, but still enough fruit to you know have flavor, this is where you really want to look for the wines. And again, the quality reputation of Casablanca has really increased in recent years. Mm-hmm. We also have the San Antonio Valley. Just south of there. Yep. Now, there's not much to say about the San Antonio Valley on the whole, but there is another valley within this valley. There's a lot of valleys in Chile. When you're dealing with mountains, that kind of tends to happen. But um, it's called the Leda Valley. Now, I mentioned this one in the last episode because I mentioned a Sauvignon Blanc I had had from a producer also called Leda from the Leda Valley. And that Sauvignon Blanc was Absolutely incredible. The Leda Valley is known for its Sauvignon Blanc, asparagus, florals, really good fruit profile, particularly some really nice grapefruit, beautiful wine not from as, Leda. Yeah, not as electric as New Zealand, not as mm-hmm. austere as Loire yeah. Valley. That's the only um, Leda Valley Sauvignon Blanc I have tried, but I would really like to get my hands on more. Because it's a smaller region, it's hard to get a lot of exports out so it's kind of a hard wine to find but uh, if you can find one i would recommend checking it out if you like sauvignon blanc at all yeah absolutely well moving out of aconcagua we are getting more now into the central valley around santiago Yay! <laughs> he's not gonna stop <laughs> this is more shorzy references for those who are not in the loop <laughs> i'm sorry no i'm not yeah this is gabe he... shorzy wouldn't apologize i'm not either Huh? (laughs) So uh, we have around Santiago and the flatter areas between the coastal and the Andes Mountains, respectively. So the first one that we're going to be looking at is the Maipo Valley. This place is mostly growing uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. It also does have Carmenere as well as Merlot, which are both also grown there in, in fairly large quantities, but not quite as much as Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah. It's going to have a lot of influence more from that mountainous region. It's a little bit hotter. There is still some coastal influence that's going on that is moderating it, but it's much more slight. Yeah. 
in these areas. So your stuff is going to be a little bit more fruity, a little bit more, not to the point of jammy, I wouldn't quite say, but it is going to um, get there pretty much. If it's on the valley floor, so there's a lot of high production wine that happens in Maipo. Maipo mm-hmm. was one of the first wine growing regions in Chile because it, you know, as you said, Santiago's like in the middle of it. Yeah, it's right there. Um, So that made it yeah. kind of the first place where wine was being grown. Um, So there is you there might find jamminess. some jammy in some of those higher or um, higher volume producers, not higher end producers. So that cheaper bottom shelf kind of wine style, you might find that again, uh, valley floors tend to be more fertile as well, which also can increase ripening, which can lead to if you pick too late jammy wine as yeah. well. But something uh, about the Maipo region as well. Uh, so Michael mentioned that parts of it are under coastal influence, but most of them are not. The Maipo region, because it is in a band from east to west, does sometimes kind of get broken up into three little sub-regions of Maipo. Those are going to be the Alto Maipo. This is going to be up in the Andes foothills, as you were talking about, a lot of that mountain influence. So again, high diurnals, poor soils. As I mentioned, too fertile on the valley floor, not so great, but poorer quality soils for most other plants are much better because the vines have to work harder and therefore the grapes are hardier. We have central Maipo, which I believe Santiago is in this part of Maipo, if I remember my maps correctly. Yeah, well, because you have the Maipo River going straight through it. Yeah, so this is going to be the warmest and the driest part of the region. You know, it's kind of smack dab in the middle. So a lot of sunlight here as well. This is where the wines, if they are going to be jammy, are going to be at the jammiest. yeah. Yeah. And then we have Pacific Maipo. This is where we have a little bit of coastal influence because it's a lot closer to the ocean than the other parts of Maipo are. And this is a very good growing region for particularly white wine grapes. And there's a lot of experimentation happening right now for white wines in this Pacific area of Maipo. Next up, we would have our Rapel Valley. This place is going to be a bit, in general, warmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a little south of there. It's known for Carmenere. It will be also growing Cab Sauv and Syrah. I would say that the key place that is growing in this region would be, oh gosh, Cachapoal. Cachapoal. Yeah, Cachapoal. Yeah. Thank you for actually looking <laughs> at videos where you could pronounce these. <laughs> I just did the reading. I mean, my pronunciation is probably still not great, but, you know, I tried. I tried for this yeah. episode. No, I mean, you, you got it. At, at a certain point, you know, it's just like, well, I did just read it, but, you know, you can look it up on Google and just be like, yeah. pronounce this, please. Mm-hmm. It might not be the right way, <laughs> which if you do know the right way, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter in order to DM us the correct pronunciations. Nobody has taken me up on this yet. <laughs> Someone please indulge, Michael. Please. I just want to say things correctly. Uh, so, Cochapoal, uh, uh, that's going to be... Cochapoal. Cochapoal. My God. Cochapoal um, is going to be the place where Carmenere is most prominently grown. Yeah. Or um, at least the highest reputation for the Carmenere grown there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we also have the Colchagua Valley, which mm-hmm. is very famous in the region. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, this one, this is the one that has one of the few remaining steam-powered trains. Oh, really? Like, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Um, so it's uh, San Fernando. It's known for its wineries, just the entire area. It has a lot of colonial architecture still in the in the area as well, as well as a museum called the Colchagua Museum with a bunch of like pre-Columbian art. It's actually just a really cool area. Hmm. 
we should take a vacation. Yeah, no, I'm and totally drink a down lot down. of wine. But I, I can't say this on the Chilean episode, but if we're gonna go anywhere, I want to go to Madeira. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. Yeah, the hikes, man. Yeah, true. Well, we also have the Curico and the Maule valleys. These are mostly bulk regions. There's not really a whole lot to say about them in terms of the the more quality wines that are coming out of Chile. However, Curico does have the most fine diversity in the country, so that's a cool little fact. And Maule, so we mentioned in the last episode, there's a lot of old vines in Chile because it never underwent the phylloxera epidemic. In Maule, there are some very old Carignan vines that are now beginning, or well, not beginning, they have been being cultivated into some very prestigious old vine Carignan wines. Those are kind of the, the two big factors for Curico and Maule. So uh, moving on then, we have southern Chile. This is going to be cooler than most of your other wine-growing regions just because of the latitude that it's at. So remember, we are in the southern hemisphere, so at this latitude, farther south is going to be cooler instead of further north like it is in the northern hemisphere here. That gives us a lot more cool climate grapes overall in this region, or well, these regions, I should say. Sparkling wine is actually coming to fruition here in southern Chile. Not really anything established in terms of um, what grapes work best or anything that I know of yet. I'm assuming it's probably going to be more of your standard sparkling grapes. So Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. I don't know about Sauvignon Blanc. I don't know if that's really being explored for sparkling wines here or not. But either way, we have for our subregions the Itata Valley. This is going to have a lot of Pice and Muscat. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention Muscat is grown in a lot of places in the country as well, but particularly these uh, southern regions is where a lot of production for Muscat grapes is happening. We also have the Biobio Valley. Again, Pice and Muscat here, but we also have a lot of high-quality Chardonnay and Pinot Noir that mm. are beginning to grow in popularity coming from here. And then we also have the Mayeco Valley. I couldn't really find a whole lot of details about that, so just, I would say, assume... A lot of these cooler climate grapes. Also, something for southern Chile, I forgot to mention this. There's a lot of experimentation happening with aromatic varieties. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Gewurztraminer is one that I saw a lot. I don't know about Riesling. Uh, I assume if they're experimenting with aromatic varieties, Riesling is kind of the go to for that. I don't know about Viognier either. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say aromatic grape, Aromatic grapes are white grapes that tend to have a very strong and complex nose from the grape itself, not from winemaking techniques that are associated with the grape. So Gewurztraminer and Riesling both have a very dominant floral, almost spicy nose, particularly for Gewurztraminer. So that's what I mean by aromatic varieties. Um, As far as the Mayako Valley, uh, I did find a little bit on it. It tends to not have as much ability to hold water in the soil Mm -hmm. um so there there is some difficulty there with their uh, irrigation but it's also super sandy it's volcanic and there's a lot of red clay so it's kind of ideal in some ways but also that's great if you want sparkling wine grapes because those soils lead to really high acidity exactly so I think they just started planting uh, back in 2010. They planted the first Pinot Noir vineyard there. So we might be looking at a Blanc de Noir coming out of that, which would be absolutely delightful, I'm certain. 
Well, we'll keep our eyes out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm always down for a good block. Huh? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So definitely want to be keeping an eye out. Yes. Yeah, so. Yes. Yeah, so. I'm going to keep an eye out. Um, so now that we've kind of gone through uh, a lot of these different regions, uh, we wanted to also talk about the wine laws themselves because the very loosey goosey wine laws. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like a historical precedent was set when they just decided to huh. uh, to flip huh. the bird to the king of Spain. Funny you say that, Michael. Yeah, because I actually have a little bit of an explanation for why this is the case. Um, so, well, actually, uh. Maybe let's let's discuss the wine laws first, and then we can kind of maybe get into why they are the way that they are. Yeah, commentary follows the viewing. Yeah. So um, the main portion for wine laws in Chile is going to be the Denominaciones de Origen, or DO. Think of this as very similar to how pretty much every other wine-growing region in the world does this, particularly in, in Europe, where you have regional labels. In Chile, it's really no different. These DOs are legally protected regions and subregions of the wine growing areas. And sometimes they can get even more specific to like valleys, very specific valleys that are in these regions. We do have the only real like limitation on the grapes themselves are, as far as I read, no hybrid grapes are allowed in Chile, at least for their official wine production. We do have a little bit of a kind of like what we have in the United States here. So for minimum percentages of grapes in a wine, if a wine is varietally labeled and it's being sold within the country, so wine's not destined for export markets, the minimum requirement is 75%. So if it says Chardonnay, it has to be at least 75% Chardonnay is in that wine. The same percentage also goes for vintage dated wines. So 75% of the grapes on a vintage labeled wine have to be from that vintage. For exported wines, it's the exact same system, but bump it up to 85% instead of 75%, both for the varietally labeled and the vintage Vintage. dated. The minimum alcohol percentages for exports are going to be 12% for whites and 11.5% for reds, which I found to be interesting. I would expect that to be flipped. Yeah, right? Because reds are always going to be yeah. a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. Well, are always, or mostly. Mostly, yeah. That's so interesting. And then for regionally labeled wines, uh, 85% of the grapes must be from that region. Now, because of how Chile works, there's a lot of pride taken by a lot of Chilean wine makers. So I'm assuming most of these are going to be closer to 100% than 85%. Mm-hmm. So we do have some labeling terms. They are Reserva, Reserva Especial, Reserva Privada, and Gran Reserva. These really don't have very much legal definition at all. They are more colloquially used by wine producers to kind of give you a sense of their range as a wine producer and what they consider to be their quality scale. Or their brand in, a, in another way of saying it. Or their brand, yeah. But the problem you run into is when you have brands competing against brands, you know, you can put Cupcake up against the Islatina that we're drinking, right? Like, yeah. it, it's There's not a common language between producers, unfortunately. Exactly. Yeah. Now, there are some independent bodies that are trying to help fix this issue by 
if you put like our seal on your label, you have minimum yield requirements. You have this, you have this, you have this, but it's more of the producer can opt into them Mm -hmm. rather than they are legally mandated by the government. Now, why is this the case? So try not to spend too long on the politics of South America because they are bloody and they are long. Um, And we probably don't understand all of it. uh, Yeah. Yeah. True. That being said though, if you are even remotely in touch with global politics from the past hundred years, you probably know that there was a very large um, revolutionary socialist sentiment for a long time in South America still is to this day, actually. Chile was no exception to that. And the government actually did try to institute some more strict wine laws at one point, And the people basically said, screw you, government. And it led to actually an increase in revolutionary sentiment to overthrow that government. So that's a very short explanation for why you would kind of think there would be a lot of inconsistency in Chilean wine. And there can be. There are obviously going to be bad Chilean wines. There's going to be bad wines from any wine-producing region. But I, I think, you know, and maybe this is very Eurocentric thinking now that I think about it, but I think in a way we almost kind of expect countries to have to have like the AOC system in the EU to produce good wines where it's like you have your minimum yield requirements, you have your minimum alcohol requirements, you have what you can and can't use for like pesticides and stuff in the vineyard. Blah, 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 blah. But Chile, with as loose as the regulations are, produces a lot of very good wine. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, a large part of that is because the winemakers feel a lot of sense of ownership over their vineyards, over their wines. And I really like that about Chilean wine culture. Yeah, I would say that there are there are two kind of schools of thought going into a light criticism of the way that that's done, because On the one hand, you do have that sense of ownership. You do have that ability to be as creative and free as possible. On the other hand, having a common language between competing bodies or even just bodies that are sharing with each other is something that's necessary in order to then communicate it to the rest of the world. Without that level of communication, there's no commonality in order to even just swap knowledge. Well, but again, remember, that's what a lot of these independent private bodies are trying to accomplish well and that's what i like about that where it's oh hey you can opt into this just so that we have a way of communicating our practices and what people can expect to each other and that's it it doesn't have to be that a government is controlling it necessarily just that a group is allowing for there to be that common language yeah i mean that's that's even the case for the podcast you know we want for people to be able to have a common language that they can come together and discuss wine with us and with other people that allows for as long as you agree with us exclusively though i mean obviously we're not trying to go crazy there's there's no dissent of opinion allowed yeah good heavens no i mean and if you do have a dissenting opinion uh, as long as you're at least agreeing with me then you're fine oh okay (laughs) all right trying to rile up the ipa drinkers in the audience today i see yeah no (laughs) much more revolution sentiment we must overthrow the game (laughs) down with the anti-hops bourgeois class 
<laughs> don't tread on me <laughs> but uh, it's my, but it's hops <laughs> i i will tread your hops underfoot i will discard Sir. them like the garbage they are i mean but they're still used in law anyways they are yeah you're right yeah as a balancing agent <laughs> do you want no balance is that what it is <laughs> i live for chaos <laughs> My father, my father was a beer maker. <laughs> my my father was a millennial dad. <laughs> father was a millennial dad. He played exclusively cornhole. And let me tell you, when he played cornhole, he would just become rotten. <laughs> and one day when I came home, he was playing a really prickly game with the neighbor. And you know what I did? I said, Father, what are you doing? And Oh, this is getting real dark. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah, uh, no. Yeah, right. I <laughs> was going to say it's like you're doing bocce ball, but it's just large balls of hops. Bocce ball. You are a millennial dad. The I fact like that you... bocce ball. Yeah, so. <laughs> Michael's a millennial dad. Michael's a millennial dad. <laughs> it's fun. Oh, I don't know how to deal with this. <laughs> Have anyway, you ever played bocce ball? I haven't. Because I'm not a millennial dad. <laughs> it's imported from Japan. It's 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 from Japan. Okay, weeb. Uh, you of all people. Yeah, yeah, that's really you rich coming from You are the only other person I know who actually can speak some Japanese. Anyway, um, but that kind of does it for the wine laws. Yeah, uh, so let's get into uh, some of this tasting. A good way of kind of navigating off of the wine wall is because well, I know that just to go back to this real quickly, I know that we said it's basically super vague. Well, yes, mm-hmm. that just means that you have to find a producer that oh, yeah. you can yeah. enjoy. Thank you for bringing that up. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. And when you find that producer, they're going to have a website more than likely. Mm-hmm. It'll help you to navigate their specific selection. Yeah. And, you know, websites like Wine Searcher are really good for going into countries and finding reputable mm-hmm. producers and stuff like that. So, yeah, but I mean, you can definitely just go in and be like, okay, so, you know, I'm wanting something uh, from a little bit warmer of an area. Okay, so I I know I want those more jammy notes, but I don't want to go full jammy. Okay, well, you know, that's going to be Mipo. Mm-hmm. And probably you want to go for Alto Mipo. Yeah. If you're going to go for that, then find producer you like. And explore their catalog. That's my personal recommendation. But as Agreed. far as what we're doing, we are having a lovely Carmenere from we 2018. Are. We are. And what is it called, Gabe? It's called the Islatina. Yeah, it is going to be from the La Rabicana Vineyard. This is made by a woman named Irene Pavia. If you have been listening to the podcast for long enough, that name might ring a bell because we actually tried a... Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so uh, her catalog. No, <laughs> no, we're so, not doing. We're so, just doing a bunch of impressions on the podcast I, these days. I, I know we're just becoming too referential. It's becoming meta. Yeah, sorry. Facebook's about to buy us out. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, so I uh, wish we we tried uh, her Cabernet Sauvignon from her. When I say lower quality brand, please don't take that to mean bad quality. The Islatina line that she produces is kind of like the step up from the Q, which is what we tried, QU. Both of these lines have wines that are worth trying. Please do. $19.99. This is from Naked Wines. Again, not sponsored by Naked Wines, but I just love them. This was $14.99 for me with my angel discount, so just throwing that out there. Great wine. Uh, Fantastic wine. What do you get off of it, Michael? Heaven. 
Heaven. Mm. No, mm. this is a fantastic wine. I've been sipping on it uh, for the duration of the last two episodes. Yes. It's super herbal. Definitely more spicy. When I mentioned this earlier, I, I believe I call it, called it liquid rust, which yeah. they both loved and hated. No, I like the descriptor. It's when you talked about calling it liquid rust, rust as, as the label. Well, I said that that's what a California vineyard would call this wine when it was released. And I hate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we have different opinions on marketing to prime people for experiences. But at the same time, uh, I'm still getting some fruit. Yeah. It's definitely more on that brambly side of things, both in its, uh, it's, it's greener notes as well mm-hmm. as the fruity notes. It's a lot of um, like blackberry. Um, there's It's plummy as well, but like I would say blackberry, black cherry particularly. Yeah. Those, if if those... I had to say plum, I would say more like plum peel than. Yeah. I, you know. that, yeah. Or plum pit even. Yeah. Like the way a plum oh, pit yeah. kind of smells, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Even just how like, have you ever just let the pit sit on, sit on your tongue? No. Okay, so if you do that with one that's just slightly underripe, this gives me that same feeling of acidity, and it it kind of has that same kind of quality of flavor. Okay. This did spend, I want to say it was just over a year in oak, if I remember the website correctly, so there's definitely some spice from that as well happening. The spice is, um, it's not like pepper. Like It's like nutmeg, clove, those sweeter baking spices. Yeah. There is a little bit, though, of almost like a... Have you ever had rainbow peppercorns? Yeah, I was about to say it's it's like like pink or rainbow. Yeah, pink. I think pink is... Or rainbow, yeah. Like, it's not white pepper, it's not black pepper, it's not that pungent, but there's that fruitier side of pepper mm-hmm. that can sometimes happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really lovely. But that, that fruitier side really allows for that more brambly green note mm-hmm. to kind of shine because it's the, the brambly green note is not hyper prominent. Yeah, well, so it's like someone I saw, one of the winemakers in a video I watched on Chile said that he doesn't like when people describe Carmenere as green. And I totally understand what he's saying because green for a lot of people means like obnoxious pyrazine, bell pepper yeah, super kind stringent. of thing. I would say... If we want to get into like really obscure wine terminology for pretentious people, less green and more like olive yeah. notes, you know, it's, it's not that bright, obnoxious greenness that you can get out of particularly underwipe wines. It's that things yeah. that come from the earth. Like Kalamata olive right there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, this doesn't taste like Kalamata olives, but like it's for metaphor yeah, purposes. Yeah. yeah, this isn't saline. No, 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 no. Yeah. Oh, but could you imagine if it was? If it had a little bit of salinity, that that would give it a nice edge, yeah. Well, this came from the Cachapoal Valley. So, valley known for its Carmenere production, right? It's from a very specific uh, DO in Cachapoal called Peumo, or Peumo. I'm not quite sure. It's P-E-U-M-O. So, I'm just going to say Peumo. This was an DO that was established in 1994. And uh, I pulled from actually Wine Searcher that I mentioned earlier a brief summary on the climate of this region. So from Wine Searcher, the macroclimate here is very suitable for cold-hating Carmenere, with warm days and milder nights influenced by the Cachapoal River. This runs in a roughly south-southwesterly direction until turning near Peomo to a more northwesterly path, heading toward Rappel Lake and then the ocean. 
Consequently, the DO sits in a break running northwest to southeast in the coastal range of mountains, which is going to be the Cordillera de la Costa. So this corridor may also increase moderating coastal influences on the macroclimate here. While summers still provide great ripening conditions, risk of frost is negligible in spring and minimized during the winter. At the same time, foothills descend to the valley floor just to the east of Peomo, providing shelter from adverse climate and weather influences from the Andes, which run parallel to the coastal range further to the east. So saying all that to say, this is a very good place to consistently grow grapes that like a warm climate, mm-hmm. which is Carmenere. Yeah. So what do you what do you think about this? Oh, I love this wine. Um, yeah. I've had this wine before. This is my third bottle, I think, that I've bought, second or third. Irene Pavia is a very reputable and accomplished winemaker in the Chilean wine industry. She's worked for very prestigious producers. Solid wine, very complex in a, again, that more earthy sense that we were talking about before. But the fruit is still very bright. Like, I don't want to not talk about the fruit a whole lot because it's still very fresh tasting. But I would say this wine can go for probably quite a while. I mean, this is already four years out and it's delicious. Yeah. I would say if you're like a, if you're a Shiraz lover or a Cabernet Sauvignon lover, this would be a good wine to try. It's not quite as punchy as those two. And it's not going to be jammy like you are going to get, particularly with Shiraz. But it kind of has that fruitiness, that fullness, that ripeness, that is just the very quintessential big, bold red experience, but in a bit of a more refined take, I would say. Yeah. And if you're looking for things to pair with it, uh, this is a fantastic wine to pair with more like lamb dishes that are yeah. more herb heavy smoky bacon actually, kale is actually really good with the two and blue cheese i would say this would be a really good barbecue wine absolutely because oh. since it's not as tannic as like shiraz and cabernet so so um structural wise this wine is is it's viscous yeah. it's not super viscous but it is viscous and the tannins are definitely there they're present i would say they're medium to kind of the upper end of medium maybe kind of like a yeah and they, it's not particularly gritty. No, um, they're super smooth. Yeah, so smooth. Um, So because they're not that super, super high tannin, they can kind of stand up to some of the sweetness that can come into barbecue a little bit better than like Cabernet Sauvignon or really high tannin reds oh, yeah. can. Yeah. I would also say this is really good for like Mexican and Thai. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like I could I could go for an enchilada verde with this and yeah. it would be just perfect. Uh, so something about Chile that we haven't mentioned that I did see is that um, a lot of times the wines of the regions are catered. It's kind of like France. A lot of places in France will cater their wines to the food that they eat as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also the case for Chile. They tend to focus a lot on the pairing. Chicken Fiesta right now would be kind of amazing. <laughs> Not quite on the level of, you know, a chef in Chile making us a bespoke lunch, but, you know. No, 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 no. And I mean, it's even not, it's not Chilean cuisine, but it's, uh, it would be very welcome right now um, <laughs> with this particular wine. I'm thinking more like barbacoa if we're going to go like Mexican or 
Well, while Gabe and I decide where we're going to get dinner, uh, (laughs) we hope that you have enjoyed this episode on the specific regions of Chile. If you have not already, go ahead and give a listen to the overview, as well as follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LaidbackLush. And please do share this podcast with people. We appreciate you. Huh? I, I get so violently angry every time he does it, and it never changes. Um, but again, thank you guys so much for listening. Indeed. I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. Huh? <laughs> Cheers. 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 Yeah.